Welcome to the Jewish World Podcast, where we go in depth on the issues most affecting the Jewish people and the Jewish state. I'm your host, Alex Rifchin, and this podcast is brought to you by the Executive Council of Australian Jewry. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Melina Sapple, features editor at Variety, about anti-Semitism in Hollywood, how Jews are depicted on the screen, and the myth of Jewish domination of Hollywood. I'll then speak with Rola Brentlin, the head of special projects at Chelsea FC, about how the European champions are leading the fight against anti-Semitism in football and beyond, and why the adoption of the IRA definition of anti-Semitism is so essential to understanding and combating anti-Semitism. Then I'll speak with Ross Creel of the Dubai Jewish community, one year after the signing of the historic Abraham Accords. Melina, thank you so much. Welcome to the Jewish World Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure. You wrote a wonderful piece for Variety in June called Too Jewish for Hollywood, in which you looked at a number of fascinating and really critical issues, including anti-Semitism in Hollywood, how Jews are depicted on the screen, casting of non-Jews to play Jewish characters. I just want to unpack some of these really important themes. Regarding, firstly, the idea of Jews controlling Hollywood, and this is something that we hear a great deal and we've heard for many years, and it's often even expressed in the form of a compliment. And firstly, this involves people counting Jews, looking for Jewish surnames and the rest, which is in itself pretty creepy and malicious. But the idea of control, it goes beyond even that, doesn't it? It suggests that if you have a multiple of Jews on a board of a company or in, in an industry or a government department, they will inevitably conspire, manipulate, deceive, undermine. But in reality, they probably don't even know each other, have different political and religious views and have different aims and interests as people do. How much have you encountered this sort of view of Jews controlling Hollywood? And does it stem from naivety or ignorance or is it something more sinister? You know, I can't speak for those that um, that prescribe to this, uh, you know, age-old stereotype. Um, so I don't know what their motivation is. So I, you know, I I think a lot of it is ignorance. I obviously um, it comes from somewhere. It's not certainly not an original accusation. It's something that I've heard quite a bit. So it's nothing that they've come up with on their own. It's something they've heard and they're mimicking. Um, maybe it comes from a place of their own frustration. You know, who's to say? I can't really take anybody else's inventory. I just know that I have been in the presence, um, and I talked about this in the article, of people saying it to me. And, you know, this might be a simplistic way to express how it feels. But anytime I think that I've been othered or lumped together, um, you know, if someone is, anytime anyone has made a sweeping generalization about, you know, being Jewish and what that means mm -hmm. and what Jews do, you know, my generally, it just does not feel good. <laughs> it's never, it always does something to me wherein I don't feel good about it. I feel bad. I feel othered. It makes me feel a little sick. It's depressing. Um, you know, that this is my visceral, this is my visceral response, you know, to yeah. when someone's. And so it's not even something I don't know if I can articulate into words. It, I don't like it. It makes me angry. It makes me, um, you know, it, it, it does come from a place of ignorance. You know, we, we know that Jews um, came to Hollywood and a lot of, you know, many of the motion picture studios were founded by Jewish people who um, were immigrants. They weren't allowed into various other industries. There's, there's lots of reasons that they founded Hollywood. They wanted to um, take part, you know, they wanted to realize their version of the American dream. Right. And but it's just, you know, what, what's interesting, I, I guess the thought that kind of leaps to mind when you just asked me that is a lot of times I have been in the presence of people that um, I don't want to kind of quantify success by 
necessarily how much one is paid or whatnot. But I think it's important to note that a lot of times people, I've been in the presence of people who have said something like that to me, like juice control Hollywood by people that are doing so well in the business. You know, like they're, I mean, I'm an entertainment journalist. I'm a staff journalist. I love what I do. But, you know, the idea that I would, I, you know, me as a Jew would have control over an industry in which, you know, let's say they're a big producer or they've made several films. It's, it's just illogical. You know, there's nothing logical about this kind of brand of anti-Semitism. They're living in so many ways a far more glamorous life than, than I am. So it's, it's odd to someone to kind of say that who's they they clearly have so much more control you know than than I do as as a journalist whose you know primary goal is to um, pursue the truth and capture the truth of what's happening in the world with facts and so that's always been really weird and odd to me when I've been in the presence of people not that are feeling down on their luck or they haven't made it but people in fact that have that still feel the need for whatever reason to kind of, you know, point out that it was so much, I don't, I don't know what their point is, you know, that it was harder yeah. for them to have control. I don't know. It's, it's just such an old trite. Yeah. Hired stereotype. And it, it, it you know, I, I think I hear it and I also feel, wow, this person is either very resentful or angry or just stupid or ignorant, yeah. you know, yeah. or anything good, you know? Yeah. I, I, I think you nailed it there. I mean, we can try and kind of intellectually unpack where they're coming from and why they think these things. But I think so many of these anti-Semitic stereotypes have been so embedded and regurgitated for centuries that people just think it and feel it and don't even know why anymore. Yeah. That, that's really troubling. It makes it so hard to combat. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I don't know if there's a lot of thought process that goes yeah, into that's some, right. you know, uh, further disseminating any sort of stereotype. I tend to think there's not a lot of thought necessarily that goes into it you know they're I, I don't know yeah yeah I I, I, want, I want to talk about how Jews are depicted on the screen this is another theme that came from your article and how the impact this has in shaping the way that the public perceives Jews and views them for better or for worse and again in your article you talk about you know a number of Jewish characters that have appeared in tv and film over the years whether it be, you know, every Woody Allen character or surrogate, you know, characters played by Seth Rogen, The Nanny, Jerry Seinfeld, Larry David. Obviously, there's been, you know, a multitude of Jewish characters, but do you see a problem in how Jews have been depicted on the screen? Yeah, I think a lot of it is, you know, the idea, a lot of Jews are depicted in a very kind of cartoonish, caricature-esque, you know, they're portrayed as caricatures, you know? A lot of it is about, the hand motions and, um, you know, maybe it's about a bagel or maybe it's about, you know, a common kind of Jewish trope that for whatever reason is, you know, sticking around. Um, it doesn't, there's not a lot of nuance, I think, in the way Jews are portrayed on screen in the large and whole. Mm. Um, and, you know, I mean, I wrote about this and, and there's, there's a few shows that I think do it pretty badly. There are some shows, you know, I talk about Stiesel in my, in my, um, my piece because, you know, it is an Israeli show and it is about, uh, Jews living in the Haredi ultra, you know, Orthodox community in a neighborhood in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. But that show, what it does and what other shows I think can take a lesson from is there's a lot of nuance, Mm. you know, it's, it's, it's the understatedness in which these characters are portrayed and how layered they are. And, um, you know, you don't see a lot of that in TV or film depictions of Jewish people. And, you know, I think, you know, the casting is something that's often problematic. You know, um, very often there will be a non-Jew playing a Jewish role. Can non-Jews play Jews? Of course, no one's saying that like, it can't be done. But when you start kind of noticing that it's done way more so than Jews playing Jewish roles, yeah. it becomes dramatic because, you know, we are living in an age of where there's more attention and there should be played to diversity in TV and yeah. film. I, I think the same attention needs to be played to, to Jewish characters, you know? I mean, 
Um, it's, I don't know what it's like to be a non-Jew and try to connect to somebody who's Jewish while playing the role. Yeah. You know, I'm not an actor, but I spend a lot of time around them. And, you know, we, you know, and it just, I want to point out too, it's not just in the Jewish community. You see with certain communities, like in the, uh, you know, the indigenous Native American, American Indian communities, you know, they would, they would cast Mexicans often yeah. in the role of, you know, indigenous people. And it's like, that's not right either. And yeah, I think the same yeah. goes for, for being Jewish. Um, there's, you know, you can't really fake a Jewish neshama. You can't, you know, like yeah. you, I think there is something to really trying to make an effort to at least give Jewish actors and actresses the opportunity to play these Jewish roles um, wherever it's possible. It, it just makes very... it more natural and nuanced and organic and real. And yeah, I think that's- Yeah. It's a very interesting point because, you know, as you mentioned, there, there seems to be this kind of this push for, you know, uh, characters that are from an ethnic minority to be depicted by actors of that minority group. Likewise with LGBT characters to be played by right. actors from, from that community. But that doesn't seem to extend to the Jews, as, as you mentioned there. So, for example, with The Marvelous Miss Maisel, Rachel Brosnahan does a fantastic job as a fine actress as she is. And many other characters, actors in that show play very, very Jewish, stereotypically Jewish characters, but aren't Jewish. And it ends up being, as you say, like a kind of caricature of what they think a Jew is meant to act like and behave like. Why do you think that, you know, this kind of new intellectualism, which is demanding that minority actors be, you know, minority characters be represented by minority actors. Why does that not extend to Jews? What does that say about how Jews are viewed in Hollywood? Are we too privileged to benefit from this wokeism? Gosh, I mean, it's such a minefield. I, you know, there are likely lots of reasons. I, I'm actually not a big fan of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. <laughs> I, I actually find the, um, I, I find that it perpetuates stereotypes about yeah. Jews to a point where it makes me deeply uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, I don't like it. I, um, I don't know, you know, I'm sure. And again, this is me, this is, this is me having worked in the industry for a long time, making an educated guess. But um, yeah. I think casting a lot of times comes down to box office draw on TV and film, who's going to watch it, who's, you know, who's going to tune in to see this particular actor or actress. Um, the idea that something might be too Jewish still very much exists, yeah. you know, you can have a movie about Golda Meir, for example, but, um, you know, you're gonna, if you can get Helen Mirren, who's an incredibly extraordinary actor to play her, um, then you're going to do that versus, mm -hmm. you know, I know that uh, Shira Haas is also starring in another version of a movie about Golda Meir, but, you know, you can't, uh, you know, uh, casting, money, funding, uh, you know, I, there's, there's lots of reasons, but I, I think primarily it's that there's this kind of fear of, of being too Jewish, you know, it's right. like, are people embarrassed? Are people they want they don't want to call attention to themselves? Is it an extension of still you know Jews trying to assimilate into American culture? Right. Is it um you know um I, you know I there's there's a lot of factors that that come into play when when casting I studios you know studios are big banks and I and I think that a lot of it comes down to you know like it's not just about the art it's really about you know we're putting a lot of money into making this movie. We want to make sure that it attracts as many people as possible. And are people in middle, middle America going to go see this film if it stars, you know, a Jewish actress? I, I, you know, I don't know. I think that a lot of those factors come into play mm -hmm. when putting together um, a cast for a movie. But, you know, I it's it's just the kind of the constant kind of treatment of Jews as these kind of cartoonish or token figures yeah. in TV, yeah. that's what's especially troubling, um, you know, and that, that's kind of why, you know, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, I, I trust me, I know plenty of, of viewers, Jewish and non-Jewish, that love, love, love the show. For me, 
it, it it's it's it smacks of so much anti-semitism i yeah. i can't get past it um yeah. so well for me on, it's that probably- thing, on that thing of anti-semitism i just want to ask you about some things that emerged from the last gaza war that we saw a few months ago where we had uh a number of actors very high profile figures mark ruffalo susan sarandon taking very partisan often very extreme positions against Israel in ways that could really be yeah. linked, I think, to the surge in anti-Semitism both online and in the real world that we saw in American cities and cities around the world. Uh, Mark Ruffalo later apologized, but he initially accused Israel of genocide, an extraordinary accusation. Do you think there's a price to be paid for being anti-Israel or even anti-Semitic in Hollywood? And I'm thinking also of you know Mel Gibson and the passion and his subsequent outbursts and the fact that it seems to have affected his career very little. Do you think there is a price to be paid for for that sort of thing or not really at all? I haven't really seen anyone having to pay a price. I mean, yeah. have you? I I you know, I mean Mel Gibson after he um you know, made went on that, you know, anti-Semitic rant um several years ago, I mean, he eventually, you know, he went on to make films that were very well received, Oscar yeah. nominated. Yeah. Um I, I haven't seen any fallout from somebody saying anything anti-Semitic. Uh, you know, there's been a few slaps on the wrist. I don't know if Mark Ruffalo made that apology because his PR team suggested that he did or the studio yeah. suggested or what happened. I wasn't in that room, but it it feels pretty disingenuous. Um, you know, and then but but where I go is, you know, I think it's, you know, my first question is, you know, how much time has someone like Mark or Susan spent in Israel? How much time have they spent in the West Bank? How yeah. much time have they spent in Gaza? Generally, the answer is zero. Yeah. <laughs> Less than zero. You know, so it really, you know, I think, I don't know if it has, so, you know, you had mentioned that the internet, you know, it, it plays a large role in this and, and it does, but at the same time, you know, these are, I think it's, you know, there's, there's this wokeness, which isn't on the face of it, a terrible thing, but it seems to only apply to, um, in so many ways to, uh, Israeli politics. I don't see a lot of people, um, you know, and I'm, I'm very much, uh, I don't, I don't want to go into politics, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty liberal, you know, and, and, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a registered Democrat and whatnot. So, but I, but that aside, like, it's, it's more like, you know, it they're not up in arms about what's happening in Syria. You know that you know even even Mark you know Mark uh, they're not up in arms about what's happening in you know in China. They're not using their voices to the same extent when it comes to so many atrocities that are happening around the world. They're specifically taking aim at Israel without the benefit of having lived there, been there. Um, you know, maybe spent time amongst Israelis or even Palestinians. Mm-hmm. I don't see this as problematic for Israelis. It's also problematic for Palestinians who, you know, are living under the rule of Hamas. And, you know, um, a lot of times, you know, the boycott movement, you know, BDS, it doesn't take into account that who does it hurt? I'll, you know, much of the time it hurts, you know, Palestinians that are working, you know, in you know, Ben and Jerry's, for example, you know yeah. what I mean? You know, you're boycotting a, an ice cream store and, you know, who are the workers there, you know, but yeah. they're primarily. And so it's just the lack of knowledge and, and the ignorance that I think comes from it. That's not, not, it's, it's, it's neither, it's not, it doesn't help Israelis and it doesn't help Palestinians. And it's, and this type of, um, you know, anger and uh, activism that is so specifically focused on Israel does, nothing to nothing to help and i think matters worse in so many ways so i um you know on the large and whole what what is what can we attribute it to and it has to come down to an ingrained anti-semitism that is so deeply buried within you know world zeitgeist and in the american kind of you know zeitgeist and society that you know, I don't know if people are just kind of triggered to react a certain way, but yeah, it's yeah. not really paying attention to the facts. 
and they're often getting their sources, you know, off Instagram, as you said, and, you know, yeah. off an story and off a tweet, and they're not doing the reading and research on their own. And um, it's, you know, it's problematic, r- regardless of, you know, if you want peace, this way of constantly throwing Israel under the bus and not taking into account the situation in the Middle East on the whole and really understanding the intricacies of it and what's happening, um, you know, calling Hamas freedom fighters. I mean, none yeah. of that is good for the Palestinians, yeah. none of it. Yeah. So I just really wish that people would take a beat and educate themselves or go to a place where they can learn so that we stop kind of, um, you know, making these generalized blanket statements that aren't, cannot be backed up with facts or the reality of the situation. Yeah, Yeah, I think, you know, as you were describing there, the, the kind of thinking, the mentality that spawns these sorts of tirades from actors on social media, I was thinking about your initial remarks about, you know, it's difficult to know what's in someone's heart and mind and what motivates them at a point in time. But, you know, a lot of these views of Jews as being all-powerful, controlling, sinister, bloodthirsty, again, they've been so deeply ingrained in people's psyches over centuries. They don't know where it comes from. They don't know how to rationalise. They just feel it in a certain way. And I think exactly as you point out, when something happens overseas that is in line with that, that's consistent with that, it immediately triggers something and then it just sets them off. Um, I mean, I have... It's it's very difficult to call them out on it because, again, it's impossible to actually, unless they use overtly anti-Semitic language, which few public people are willing to do, it's very difficult to identify exactly what their motivation is at a point in time. Yeah, and I, I I don't know, at a certain point, you know, it's like, we could sit here and we could try to figure out what the motivation is for this person and that person. But at the end of the day, if you're saying things and doing things that endanger Jewish lives, Mm. Mm. you need to stop, you know, whatever your might be, you know, I mean, I look at that. It, It takes much longer to figure out from where this hatred first emerged. I mean, this is a centuries, you know, this is, this is, this is a problem. I mean, anti-Semitism has been around in its various forms for, you know, a millennia, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, different, you know, incarnations and whatnot. So we could try to figure out exactly from where it comes, or we could just say, look, you're hurting people and that's just yeah. never, it's not okay. You know, um, I don't care what your reasons are, you know, yeah. sometimes I that place, you know, um, because you could sit here and you can analyze. I've had people say things to me that are very anti-Semitic and I look and they're like, oh, they're from a part of, you know, uh, rural, you know, Indiana and they don't know any Jews, that, this and that and whatever. Yeah. Maybe, you know, yeah. but I've also heard it said to me by people in Los Angeles, you know, yeah. where we have substantial Jewish population. I've heard Jewish people say things that you shouldn't say, you know, I mean, yeah. um. So I just, you know, I think, at least for me, I think that when people say things like that, they should know that they are hurting people. And look, I mean, you just have to look at the FBI statistics. I mean, um, you know, Jews are the single largest, um, you know, ethnic group targeted when it comes to hate crimes in the United States. It's fact. It's a fact. It's a statistic. There's no arguing with it. 2% of the population. Yeah, I mean this these are crunch numbers. Yeah. So oh, it is. It is what it this exists and um and it needs to stop, just like yeah. any other hatred of any other group needs to stop, yeah. you know? And the the flip side of all this is that, you know, there are very few Hollywood figures that seem to speak up in support of Israel, particularly when it's being, you know, so widely maligned online and in the public sphere. And for example, we saw during the last war the Actors' Union in the UK uh, blatantly taking a position and calling upon its members to march in support of the Palestinians. And there's been talk about a blacklist of actors in the US and the UK that are considered to be Zionist or pro-Israel. Do you think it's becoming increasingly difficult for Jews and our allies to be outspoken uh, in Hollywood and in the acting industry? It's becoming increasingly difficult. It just, it's all, I don't remember a time where it hasn't felt difficult, to be honest. I, I mean, 
I don't know. I, I don't know what came, I, I can't really speak for exactly what the experience was before. Um, I, there, it just, I don't really ever remember in, I lived in LA for 25 years yeah. about, I don't remember a time where it's ever felt completely easy to just kind of be, I don't even like, it's weird when we start using words like speaking out, supporting Israel, being pro-Israel, be like, what does that even mean? I mean, it's like, I, I always turn it around. Like, has anyone ever said, are you pro-France? Are you yeah. pro are you like what does that even mean it's so it, it's just it makes absolutely no sense it just what does that mean pro like israel exists okay it's a country <laughs> it is the there is a difference between the land of israel and the country of israel but jews um you know originated from that part of the world from there from the levant from israel this is where we're from i, I don't know it's it is a fact deal with it um and so I, I try not to kind of like, I don't know, a pro or against, I, I don't even know. Israel is like my home. I don't know. I've lived in Israel. I go back as often as I can. There have been a lot of moments during this past year and a half that I really wish more than ever that I were there. Am I uncomfortable saying that in public? I have no problem with it, but it generally does come with the backlash and I get letters and you know, not so nice letters, <laughs> hate mail and this and that, and people can call me what they want. But, you know, I'm in a position for whatever reason, I'm a little thick skinned about it. You know, I mean, it upsets me, but it doesn't stop me from being who I am. But there are people that aren't lucky enough to be in that position, you know, and I worry about those kids, for example, yeah. you know, children, I have two children, like, they can go to school, and they can be wearing like an Israeli soccer shirt or something yeah. very innocuous, you know, yeah it can be called certain names and they're children, you yeah. know, like how do they respond? You know, it's so, I, I worry more for those that, you know, people in, in, in countries and so many places where, you know, saying that you support Israel can lead to very um, disastrous and serious consequences. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's always been difficult. I don't know if there's been a time where it has not um, maybe, you know, uh, Maybe right, you know, when, when Israel was being birthed as a state in 48 and in post-Holocaust America, there was, you know, obviously, you know, it, there was a support, you know, in the UN for the creation of Israel. But, you know, that's after like six million Jews died. I mean, is that what it takes? Is that what it takes for people to be supportive? And I asked that not even as necessarily a question because it seems that that is what it takes. And that's a horrific, horrible kind of reality. Um, well, I, I think, Melina, in, in some ways, even that isn't enough, because you look at the fact that, you know, 1945, the, the horrors of the Holocaust were being uncovered. You still have millions or hundreds of thousands of Jews languishing yep. in DP camps in Europe. And there's yep. still the white paper of the British in place, preventing Jews from coming to Palestine and settling there. Uh, yep. You still have opposition to the partition plan of the United Nations. So even that you know, it doesn't engender necessarily a sympathy and understanding the Jews and our need for a homeland. And now it's, where we are 70 years on. It was, yeah, no, it was, it was, it was, it was like a very short kind of 15 minute window. Yeah. Um, look at, you know, Refuseniks and former Soviet Union. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I mean, look at, look at the, the survivors of the Holocaust that are, you know, mired in poverty, living in Ukraine and, and parts of Russia and Eastern Europe, you know, um, that have no money for bread. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there are people that have survived the Holocaust that are literally living in squalor, yeah. that are completely ignored. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's 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 a very depressing subject matter when yeah. you know you're like think about it. And so, I um, it is you don't you don't see a lot of um, I can't really you don't see a lot of people in Hollywood walking around at you know um, Israeli pride parades. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't think we'd go into such dark and depressing places in a conversation about Hollywood, but but here we are. So maybe let's finish on something more positive, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, you spoke about Stissel, and yeah. there have been a lot of great shows and very, you know, successful commercially shows coming out of Israel, Folder, Hatofim, yeah. before that, which I thought was a brilliant show, the people from, from my perspective. Um, what do you think, you know, is the cause, the source 
of this renaissance, this boom in you know Israeli culture and television and, and film. And do you think that will have a positive impact on how Israelis and Jews are perceived? Yeah, I've written about this a little bit, and I've I've um, I actually was I've spent a couple of um, I've had a couple of sit down interviews with Leo Raz and Avi Sakharov, and we've discussed Fauda and their new show Hit and Run and everything yeah. else. They've, and I think with uh, Israeli television, I mean, yes, it's it's there's so much amazing content coming out of Israel. There, you know, there's a lot of reasons, um, and there's so much emphasis on the writing and fleshing out characters when it comes mm. to Israeli TV because they have their budgets are much smaller than Hollywood budgets. Right. You know, I mean, you know, Fauda was was low budget. You know, you have to focus on the script, the characterization. Um, you have to focus on things coming in under budget. You have to, right. you know, there's diligence, you know, maybe a little bit, you know, I was talking to Lee Orr about this and I said, do you think your army experience helped you in Hollywood? And, and, you know, he sort of thought about it and like, in some ways, you know, it's like, it, there's discipline there, you know, yeah. that helpful, you know, when you're producing a show. But I think, I think primarily I keep coming back to, there's so much emphasis on what really matters in a project, which is the writing, the characters. Um, and I think that's what really attracted, you know, Hollywood, because, you know, these characters are so, you know, whether it's Bitty Pool, which became in treatment, you know, or, you know, um, you know, Homeland or wh whatever's, you know, been based on an Israeli format. It's really the characters and they're so fleshed out and they're so um, nuanced and there's so much so many layers and they're so interesting because it's all in the writing um, and I think that's something that American projects don't necessarily have to rely on because there's money for all the bells and whistles you know the action sequences and whatnot and I think right. Israel bringing it back to brass tacks and, and 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 what really matters which is the characters and the protagonist of, of each show and I I think that has been really helpful in putting Israel on the map in terms of TV, especially. Very good. Melina, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. I'm so glad that thank we you. had a chance to finally yeah, connect and chat. Too. And thank me you so too. much for your time and for your insight. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It was great being here. Lola Brentland, welcome to the ECAJ's Jewish World Podcast. We're absolutely delighted to have you. Well, thank you very much. Good you. morning. Thank you. I wanted to ask, I wanted to begin by asking you about Chelsea Football Club's leadership in combating anti-Semitism, which means so much to our people and to me personally as a lifelong Chelsea fan and member. A few years ago, the comedian David Baddiel, who's also a Chelsea supporter, he wrote the film The Y Word, which starred Chelsea legend Frank Lampard. And that really threw light on the continuing use of anti-Semitic chants in football, including ones that mock the Holocaust at a time when racist chants directed against other ethnic and minority groups had fortunately passed into history. And we've also seen Chelsea's Say No to Anti-Semitism campaign. How did Chelsea FC become a world leader, not only in the sporting world, but across civil society, in so aggressively and effectively combating anti-Semitism? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for those kind words. Uh... And for, it's always highly appreciated when, you know, our campaign is noted, um, especially from both the fan and the community. Um, the campaign, we've been running the Say No Tantamism campaign for about four years now. And the background for it is really, I think at that time, four years ago, we started seeing quite concerning um, increases in anti-Semitic incidences across Europe. Um, attitudes changing for the worse um, in several countries, including the UK. And our club owner, Mr. Bromwich, has been obviously a lifelong supporter of the Jewish community. He's given a lot of personal charity to communities across the world. So this was in conversation with him where he wanted to do something more. Um, so we launched the campaign and have since, you know, partnered with groups from all over the world. Um, and carried out a number of activities. And, you know, it's partially about our own club, of course, and we work with our fan base and through our fan base, there are our ambassadors. And I think that's how we can really make a difference in society. 
But I wouldn't say it's, you know, it, it, it wasn't because Chelsea has a specific issue. I think football is a reflection of society in general. Mm-hmm. If you have anti-Semitism in society, you will see it in football as well. So we're trying to both kind of tackle the world of sports and of football and try to make anti-Semitism as normal to speak about as racism. This is something, you know, it, it shouldn't be hidden only in that word. This should be a separate issue that should be addressed, uh, but also trying to reach the wider society. Um, mm. I think we are a quite unexpected player um, in this field. And that, I think, gives us the opportunity to catch the attention of young people around the world, yeah. which is yeah. what we're trying to do. And, you know, something that makes your work so powerful and so meaningful to Jewish people is that it has sparked those conversations about anti-Semitism and it's drawn attention, much needed attention to the continuing threat of anti-Semitism. And those of us who analyze anti-Semitism and advocate for the Jewish people, we've been greatly frustrated by what's a real indifference to anti-Semitism as though it's a lesser form of racism. When in fact we see, for example, in the United States, 58% of religiously motivated hate crimes target the Jewish community even though they make up just 2% of the population. While in the UK, there were 460 anti-Semitic hate crimes reported in just the one-month period from May 7 to June 6. Have you encountered any criticism or even hostility for so publicly standing up against anti-Semitism? Well, um, since we launched the campaign, initially when we launched the campaign and in conversations we had with people outside of the clubs, there were definitely concerns raised to say, well, you know, how are you going to tackle this issue? How are you going to talk about mm-hmm. Israel? And I think people make it out to be extremely complicated for a non-Jewish group to operate in this field. And I think mm-hmm. it's honestly not. We've had no backlash over these years. Um, we... You know, our players, whenever we've done something, and I think this is important to remember, we don't just launch a campaign from the club um, and hope that, you know, people will go along with it. Obviously, we did a lot of pre-work. All of our um, teams, the men's team, the women's team, the academy met with Holocaust survivors. We had all our fan groups meet with Holocaust survivors with different organizations in the community. We had open conversations about, you know, what is the issue? Why are we doing this? How can mm. we help? Why do we need your support? So I think when we launched, it was really a club effort because right. all parts of the Chelsea family were on board. So whenever I haven't really seen anything except for this year, um, I think the the, the conflict in, between um, Hamas and Israel earlier this year did spark, as you know, you know, just horrendous attacks across, I think, most European capitals, I'm sure in Australia as well. Um, In the UK, the CST reported a 500% increase in somatic incidents, and that targeted the club as well. So the club owner was, you know, personally targeted on social media. We had a demonstration burning Israeli flags outside of the stadium. But in hindsight, you know, I don't think that should scare people away. Yeah, there were some comments, well, you know, there were some demonstration, but this is not the end of the world. Um, we have to address that. You have to be able to speak about anti-Semitism also when there is a conflict. You can't just go silent um, because regardless of what's happening in the Middle East, it never justifies you to be that rabbi in London. Like, th- that is not a controversial statement to make. Right. And I think that's <laughs> kind of trying to be my message and our message that, it, you know, nothing is going to... If you enter this debate, you can manage these issues. When it comes to Israel, we've signed IRA. All of the Premier League signed IRA. Yeah. It's absolutely clear there um, how to approach this. You don't have to go into, you know, issues beyond that. So I think... I think people and organizations outside of the community are scared of getting in. They're scared of being criticized, that it's very politicized. But if civil organizations, clubs, I mean, all of society doesn't enter this debate. We're actually allowing it to be politicized and weaponized, and that's the worst thing that can happen to it. So I think we're an example of, you know, do it. You're going to be fine. (laughs) Nothing is going to happen to you. You can stand up for what is right and... If you do a proper groundwork, your fans, your players will will support you. That's a terrific approach. 
And you mentioned that the adoption of the IRA definition, the International Holocaust Remembrance, Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism, and Chelsea was the first sports team in the world uh, to adopt it, and then the Premier League followed suit, which again shows Chelsea's leadership in this field. How important do you consider the IRA definition to be in understanding modern anti-Semitism as a way to then effectively fight it? I think it is very important because I think, as you say, you know, unless we all can agree on what is anti-Semitism, it becomes very hard to tackle it. And I think it's good to have, rather than having a very destructive debate on what is anti-Semitic or non-anti-Semitic, I think it's good that there is this declaration that's been developed over years and years that the governments have signed up to. It's clearly not a political or, you know, left-right right. type of document. I think it's good that it exists because it kind of ends that debate. Like, yeah. this is what we all um, agree to, and this is what we're going to fight and, and try to tackle. Um, so I think it's a, a very important document. Um, I think also with IRA, you know, why would a club sign IRA? Well, anti-Semitism is not an issue for the Jewish community to solve. It's an issue for all of society to solve. And sports is a huge part of society. So I don't see why sports or universities or anyone else in the civil society wouldn't sign on to something like this and be part of that, that work. It's also very useful if you are a club listening to this by any chance. Um, if you have incidents online among your fan base in your stadium, IRA does provide the tools to determine, you know, if an incident is anti-Semitic or not mm -hmm. and, and how to address that. So especially if you're just starting out and dealing with this is these issues, I think it, it is a quite um, useful tool for organizations to have who might face something internally as well. Indeed, indeed. And Chelsea's also partnered with the Perez Center in Israel uh, in a coexistence program for Jewish and Arab children, which is so generously funded by Chelsea owner Roman Abramovich. Rola, tell us about this program and the impact that you hope it will have. Um, no, it's really an incredible program. It all really started in 2019. Uh, Mr. Abramovich invited the women's team to go to Israel. And the point of that trip was kind of twofold. One was to promote women's football and try to help and partner with um, the, the women, the Israeli FA and, and the women's team there. Um, so we they played a game against the national team and did lots of work with um, the FA and others to try to promote the game and see how we can help them progress it. And the second part of the trip was to do community work. Um, and the type of activities we wanted to do was to really use football to bring together communities. Mm. So we had, at that point in 2019, Palestinian, uh, Muslim and Jewish girls coming together to play football. And it was... You know, we stayed in Israel for about five days, and I think those sessions left, you know, all of us. That's what we remember the most, because you see these girls, they speak different languages to be remembered, right? And um, they probably come, you know, from their homes thinking, maybe not necessarily bad things about each other, but they're not really used to interacting with each other. So they're a little bit hesitant, and then as soon as you get a few coaches and a ball in the middle, you, you don't really see who's who anymore and everything yeah. is mixed up. And football really has that power because you need to rely on your teammate, you need to yeah. work together if you want to win. So whatever differences you have have to disappear because otherwise yeah. you can't work as a team. So it was really incredible and the team truly enjoyed it. Emma Hayes was there coaching these girls and, and many other team members. Um, so after that, we immediately started discussions with the FA and, and the Paris Centre about how can we expand the programs you guys have, how can we bring the Chelsea model to it, because in the UK, we have about a million kids who go through our programs each year. So we have you know, a professional coaching model and how we include diversity workshops within that. Then the pandemic hit, so everything was kind of paused uh, for, for a while. Um, but as things are you know, reopening, uh, we're now finally ready to do this. Um, so we're launching, we're now recruiting both students um, and kids. So it's a train-to-trainer model. We're recruiting Jewish um, and Arab students 
students from universities who will work in pairs. They will get a training from us, how to use football and how to do coaching sessions. And then we'll have mixed school groups of kids playing football together. So it's it's kind of targeting both kind of future leaders and at university level and working with children. So we'll have about a thousand kids go through the first semester and then hopefully we'll be able to expand the program further. Oh, that's wonderful. It's a wonderful thing. And all of this work, well, that you and your colleagues at Chelsea are doing, it's, it's so positive and it's so heartening. When I lived in London between 2008 and 2012, I spent many afternoons and evenings in the East Stand and on the trip yeah. from Broadway. <laughs> and the Y word and anti-Semitic chants were sadly a fact of life, though they, of course, came from a, a minority, a vocal one, but a minority nonetheless. Um, in the years since your initiatives have been put into place, do you feel these sorts of attitudes and the impunity with which they've been expressed have now started to change? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think with the Y word, um, you know, we've had a zero tolerance against that for a long time at the club, but I'm not necessarily sure that everyone have understood, you know, what the word means, where it's coming from, how it impacts the community. I think, to be completely honest, for some people, they think of it as, you know, a Spurs fan, I, you right. know, it, because it's so linked into the football rivalry between Spurs right. and Chelsea. So I, I think there is a level of ignorance there that shouldn't be um, misinterpreted as anti-Semitism, right. even if that is how it shows itself. I think it's a bit dangerous labeling people who might not be coming from that place. Right. So we've tried to do a lot of education. We've done more sessions, develop materials on the Y word. Um, it's been a long time since we've heard that at any games. We've had very few reports. Right. Um, but as part of this program, what we've done is also to introduce a, um, a system where, you know, if a fan is found guilty of, or if, if there is an incident with a fan, rather than just immediately banning them, we have developed a program with um, CST and the Holocaust Educational mm -hmm. Trust where depending on the severity of the incident, if it's, you know, criminal or hate crime, then of course right. not. But if it's, if it's something that, you know, where education makes sense, we do invite them for a program where they meet with these external groups, they get they agree to kind of educate themselves about, you know, what they've done, what it means, what the background, the context is. And depending on the um, recommendation we receive from the external group they're meeting with, we then can reduce their ban as a sign of, you know, you have progressed, we trust that this will never happen again. Right. And I think that's, to be fair, when, when I talk about this thing, these things, I think sometimes people think we have hundreds and hundreds of incidents. We obviously don't. I think we had three since we started this campaign. So it's been quite limited. Um, but I think it's a good tool to offer, you know, if you ban, you're just pushing the problem elsewhere. You're not really dealing with the problem, right. right? I mean, the person's not going to stop saying these things just because they're not at a stadium. So if we and can try to address it deeper. Exactly, exactly. You're trying to deal with the problem rather than just pushing it to someone else. Mm. So I think that's also been helpful. Um, I think just the increased awareness around what the word means, why it's offensive, um, has definitely changed attitudes. I'm, I'm quite sure of that. Well, fantastic. And finally, I can't allow you to leave without asking you as a representative of the Champions of Europe, how are you feeling about the team's chances? So the transfer window has just slammed shut. Romelu Lukaku is back. We've had great performances against Arsenal and Liverpool. What are the expectations for the season ahead? I have to tell you, you're really talking to the wrong person <laughs> when it comes to those issues. I will, uh, I will gracefully decline to comment on that. But I think it's, it's really great to have fans back at the stadium. The atmosphere has been amazing. Um, it's, I think it's, you know, it's both with winning the championship, obviously, but, but just also being back together. It, it yeah. is a really amazing buzz at Chelsea right now. I'll say that. <laughs> and how do you feel it was for the Chelsea fans, many of whom I met in, in, in my days as a member, 
And I met many people for whom Chelsea Football Club was a way of life, sincerely. You know, the, the whole kind of week revolved around, you know, the club and the fixtures and the fixture lists and everything about it. Um, what do you feel it was it was like for members who depend on the club so much to be without them for such a long period of time? I, I mean, I think it must have been incredibly difficult for, for a lot of people. Um, you know, I think if you're not from London and, and from the area, you know, Chelsea does play a very big role, as you say, in many people's lives and in the community. We did try to, you know, once the lockdown was a fact, <clears throat> the, the Chelsea Foundation obviously tried to develop a number of different uh, programs to try to stay in touch with those fans, support the local community, and not just with, I think, in press, you know, it was a lot of focus on what we did for the NHS and Mr. Abramovich opening the hotels to the NHS and providing free meals and, you know, working with domestic abuse victims and really supporting the most vulnerable. I think, you know, and that was all very important. But the programs went well beyond that and also just, you know, tackling loneliness and how do we ensure we kind of maintain that community healing. I don't think you can ever develop anything that will replace that moment of coming together and meeting in the pub before. And, but I think there was definitely, this is something the club definitely tried to do as much as they could with. Um, but now that everyone are back, it's, it's such an amazing um, atmosphere at the stadium. Oh, great. So you have to come back, Alex. I, I <laughs> certainly will. The first chance I get, once the borders open, I'll be back, I can assure you. Rola, I want to thank you for joining the CAJ's Jewish World Podcast and to convey our sincerest gratitude to you, to CEO Bruce Buck and, of course, the owner, Roman Abramovich, for showing the way in the fight against anti-Semitism. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you and I wish you continued success in the wonderful work that you do. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Ross, welcome to the Jewish World Podcast. We're delighted to have you. Thank you, Alex. Great pleasure to be here. Cheers. Ross, tell us about the history of the Jews in Dubai and the Emirates in general. How long has there been a Jewish presence there? How did they come to be there? And tell us a bit about what life was like there over the years. So our community is approximately 10 years old, um, although we've had members that have lived here for 30 or 40 years, grew up in the Emirates, speak the local Arabic dialect, collegiate, etc. Um, most of us are expats um, that came to Dubai and Abu Dhabi to work. Um, and people often ask me, why do you want to be there? Well, the truth is that Dubai is an amazing city for Jews and always has been. It's a place of immense economic opportunity and economic dynamism. Uh, it's a central point um, for commerce, but also logistics. This is exactly the kind of place that you would expect Jews to be. And um, of course, historically, pre-Abraham Accords, we were reluctant to come here. But nevertheless, there were hundreds of Jews living here. Um, the community went through various phases, um, started with a kind of Robertson Crusoe phase, where you know members imagined that they might have been the only Jew living in Dubai. <laughs> Of Abu Dhabi. And uh, in that first phase, we sort of slowly uh, aggregated and met each other and pulled together a group of 30 or 40 Jews that had identified each other. And back then, it was quite hard to do because people were reluctant to identify themselves as Jewish, weren't clear about the implications of doing so, didn't really understand the project of the UAE. Uh, when I arrived here with my family in 2013, um, uh, uh, I arrived just before Rosh Hashanah, and uh, the person that was convening the community said to me, can you host Rosh Hashanah? You know, I'd been in town for two weeks. And I said, sure, and um, sort of never looked back in terms of my leadership role in the community. And um, um, what I and other leaders did is that we took that group of 30 or 40 Jews and we operationalized it, turned into a beautiful functioning community. And then I guess in the last two years, we've been working on normalizing that community, right? Normalized in terms of its relationship with Israel, uh, in terms of the creation of normal Jewish institutions, 
mikvahs, synagogues, kosher restaurants, and what have you. And the final phase, if you've gone from aggregating to communing to normalizing, the final phase will be flourishing. Eventually, and not so far away, this community will be one of the places to be in the Jewish world. And um, that idea is uh, astounding and exciting and hopeful. And you mentioned there, Ross, that the community is obviously an expat community. Dubai and Abu Dhabi are expat hubs. People are attracted to it from all over the world for the reasons you described, the economic opportunities, the centrality of it, that it's a gateway to a region mm. and so forth. Um, is, is the existence there of the Jewish community, is the interaction with other expats, or is there some kind of penetration into the Emiratis. I mean, when I was there, when I visited and uh, when I lived in London, I came there for my wife's work a couple of times. It felt yeah. like there's kind of a parallel existence there. You have the expats and then you have the Emiratis. Is there interaction between the two, between the Jewish community? There is. I mean, the um, interesting thing about the UAE is that Emiratis, who are the citizens of the country, form a minority, a small minority of the of the demographic, they are not more than 12 or 13% of the population. Um, so first of all, there's just, there's not many Emiratis go around, right? In your normal sort of day-to-day -day interactions, you're far more likely to be interacting with people from South Asia, from Australia, which is where you're from, Alex, or from Canada, um, or Africa, or anywhere else, right? That's the first point. The second point is that in my experience, Emiratis, um, have this incredible um, ability um, for change, for accelerated change, um, which we've witnessed over the last 10 years, but especially since the Abraham Accords. Just think about it. Israel went from being sort of persona non grata, so to speak, mm -hmm. to a failure, you know, to a friend, you know, in a matter of months. At the end of last year, we had, we had 130,000 Israeli visitors. Oh, wow. You know, all of a sudden you've got, um, you know, people with keyboard walking around town and payouts and what, or what have you. And the Emiratis can cope with this. They have the amazing ability um, for change and for agility. But I think that in order to make that possible, they also have a private space that they treasure. And I respect that. Um, I've also noticed that Emirati families um, um, have family time, which they treasure. And privacy and i think it's a bit of a lesson for all of us as community leaders is that you have to draw boundaries right and i see them doing that having said that um i've lived here now and i've worked here for more than 10 years but i've lived here for eight years plus and i've developed very good relationships with emirati leaders and friends people that i consider friends um they uh, host us in their homes which is a really beautiful experience and they've been very generous to us but those relationships also unfold slowly over time. Mm. And you spoke about it there, Ross, the changes that have taken place since the Abraham Accords, uh, the tourism, the academic exchanges, the diplomatic missions, so forth. Has there been any negativity at all, any blowback, um, any, any sense that the change is too rapid, too fast, perhaps unwelcomed by some, or has it been fully embraced by Emirati society? Yeah, it's a question that a lot of people ask, especially after the most recent conflict in Gaza. Mm. Um, first of all, I've seen no indication um, anecdotally or in newspapers or in anything that I've read that the UAE's commitment to the Abraham Accords is weakened in any way. In fact, I think out of the three countries that signed the Abraham Accords, the USA, Israel, and, and the UAE, the UAE is much like, likelier to have a consistent and predictable approach to the Abraham mm -hmm. Accords. And they've got a 50-year vision, which is strongly driven by their leadership. And, uh, you know, you don't have the sort of zigzagging that you have, you know, you know, with different presidents in the U.S. and Israel, etc., prime ministers in Israel. And that's the first point. The second point is that the Abraham Accords are strongly driven by strategic and economic considerations, which are really fundamental um, and are not going to change. 
So I'm confident about the longevity and predictability or the, the longevity and commitment of the UAE to the Accords. Having said that, um, I don't think anybody should assume that everybody living here you know, has the same attitude to the Accords and to um, you know, social and social, economic and political issues. Um, there's obviously a range of opinion which is legitimate and natural. And I think that people still have to get used to it. And what's really, really important, I think, for all of us engaged in this amazing experiment is the human-to-human side of the Abraham Accords, the upward swell of friendship between Jews and Muslims, Emiratis and Israelis, etc. And um, that's why the fact that you're hosting me today is important. People need to come here. They need to experience it. Um, it's got to be a warm piece that um, sort of comes upward from the street rather than coming downwards from senior leaders. And I'm, I'm confident that that will occur and has already occurred, but will increasingly occur over time. Fantastic. Ross Creel, thank you so much for joining the Jewish World Podcast. Thank you. Great pleasure to be here. And that concludes this episode of the Jewish World Podcast, brought to you by the Executive Council of Australian Jewry. Find us and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes and Google Podcasts. And don't forget to share the episode through your social media.